Welcome to On the Record with Tiffany. There are heroes throughout San Antonio, men and women that go the extra mile to make lives better. During the next hour, you'll be inspired as we introduce you to these unsung heroes. And now here's your host, Tiffany Jones-Smith. And you are listening to On the Record with Tiffany. Today, I have a wonderful special guest. Dr. Richard Gibney, president of Empowered Kidney Care. Dr. Gibney, how are you doing today? Uh, it's a great day. Um, a typical Texas uh, warm day, but that's typical for summer and all is well. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, Dr. Gibney, I invited you on today to talk uh, about kidney disease. We're finding that right now with COVID-19, it's very timely for us to discuss kidney disease because uh, COVID-19 patients, many are being uh, pushed into uh, um, kidney disease. COVID is kind of acting as as an AKI. Uh, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, AKI is acute kidney injury. Um, and so I thought, Man, I need to bring on uh, one of the best experts I know <laughs> when it comes down to kidneys uh, and and uh, probably one of the most compassionate doctors uh, in terms of, of patient empowerment um, because, uh, and that's you, buddy. <laughs> in case you're thinking I'm talking about somebody else, I'm not. I'm talking about you. <laughs> um, I thought we need to bring him on so he can... Uh, kind of explain to our population uh, what is happening right now with uh, COVID-19 as it relates to kidney patients. Yeah, the, uh, um, I um, started a nephrology practice in Waco, Tax- Waco Texas and back in 1977. So for 43 years, I uh, had the huge privilege and honor to to uh, take care of people here in Waco and the surrounding areas, and uh, uh, basically was very similar to what everybody else did as far as the traditional approach to medical care. In 2006, a dear friend of mine took me to IHI, Institute of Healthcare Improvement. Mm-hmm. And this was started about 30 years ago by Don Berwick, a pediatrician by background, and the whole point was the concept of continuous quality improvement. Uh, he and Maureen Bizzagiano and the whole family of IHI then taught our group how to do continuous quality, the science of continuous quality improvement. And from that, we then went on to patient-centered care, and our quality numbers dramatically improved. Uh, we, we went from being average to being the best in the country as far as quality. And uh, in 2012, six years later, uh, Britt Marie, the head nurse and the first patient, Christian Farman, uh, gave a talk at the IHI meeting in Orlando, Florida, the annual meeting. And uh, it was showing you self-care in-center dialysis, which is basically like home therapy in center that the patients are taught how to build their own machines and it's joyful it's happy there's tons of interaction where it's collaborative and uh, it was just like whoa 
compared to the assembly line approach, which is traditional, where it's just having the patient come in, sit down, be quiet, don't touch anything, and then as soon as they're finished, uh, uh, goodbye. Um, this whole concept of self-care was quite extraordinary. And so they came the following week to Waco, Texas for a week and said, you know, uh, you're doing everything wrong. Which, which I, <laughs> I'm sure your staff and you wanted to hear that. huh? <laughs> knew this ahead of time. because they had <laughs> First take the machine and instead of having it turned away from the patient, have it turned toward the patient mm-hmm. and permission to touch the machine as in build the machine with, with a, uh, you know, a protocol of similar to the protocol you'd have for home patients. And so we had 11 uh, dialysis clinics with about uh, 750 patients and all the nurses were enthusiastic to begin. And so we were changing cultures from the assembly line, which is, Come in, sit down, be quiet, don't touch anything, mm-hmm. come on, to a magnificent culture where the patients were given control. We were going to coach and train them how to build the machine, how to understand the workings of the machine, and have dignity and hope that their quality of life and that their health would dramatically improve. And uh, this was just a magnificent process. But the staff, went through a great transformation, whereas they used to be worker bees, just running around like crazy doing all the work, and they became coaches and trainers, so doing a much more elegant process where they were coaching, training, teaching the patients how to do all these things, and it it gave a great collaborative atmosphere in the unit. So huge improvement in culture. And the only thing we really tracked was we tracked mortality and hospitalization rate. And what we found were, were just stunning numbers. Uh, basically, the mortality rate fell in half from 17% uh, down to 7%. And the wow. hospitalization rate fell in half from 1.7 hospitalizations per patient per year to 0.8. So we're like, whoa, do you think? that if you would involve the patient in their care, they will do better. Yeah. Do you think that the person with the problem must be part of the solution? Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah. (laughs) The approach that we thought was real good was they just come in, they had no involvement at all. And and that basically, uh, we had this thing about all the noncompliant patients but the truth was we just had the wrong system in place. Patients were not non-compliant. The system was not the correct system because how can you how can you affect behavior if the patient's not part of the solution? They're the ones that really understand how to do things to make it work for them. You can't have just one system like an assembly line for 750 or 800 patients. You have to have a different system uh, for each patient in a different way to adjust for their cultural uh, uh, needs, their uh, personalities, their behavior. And so basically we went to a unit that had no, we have no non-compliant patients. We have no bad patients because we'd adjusted to meet the needs of the patients. And saying that uh, we really had uh, uh, great success. We started out, as you'd think, with the really good patients or the people we perceived to be good mm-hmm. and just jumped at it and became very very, very skilled and very uh, 
uh, quick at doing it. So and what were we, some of the things that you saw that happened with the patients themselves? As, as you, as you uh, empowered them and gave them the uh, opportunity to take back their health care experience instead of just sitting in a chair and being serviced, now they're taking back that, that experience and the, the control of the experience. What did you see happen with the patients? The uh, changes were really stunning that people, uh, for example, um, um, people that before were very passive and did nothing suddenly became very involved in their care. They understood the uh, dialysis prescription. They understood about cannulation. They understood about all the different aspects of dialysis. People with severe, all of our barriers suddenly melted away. So we had a lady with severe rheumatoid arthritis that could build her machine despite the fact that her hands were were very limited. We had people that were mentally slow that could could learn how to pull their needles and build the machine uh, just as good or better than other people. We had people with strokes that could uh, do, again, parts of the building of the machine uh, that improved with time. Uh, we had a patient that came and, and uh, gave us a PowerPoint presentation on, on self-care or empowering patients. And I said, excuse me, I was making rounds in the unit. And, and I said, uh, excuse me? And he said, uh, I'm, I'm going to present a, a PowerPoint that I made up. So we just said we we're having lunch that day. So it was just breathtaking that he got it. He sits there and gives his PowerPoint presentation. And that was the first time in my career that I had a patient present a PowerPoint on how to do a dialysis correctly. <laughs> and we had, we had a, and a hurricane Harvey hit, you know, a few years ago mm-hmm. and we had 50 patients come to uh, Waco because it was dry. Right. And the 50 patients were just stunned a, that our patients look healthy and B that they were building their own machines and they understood everything. They could uh, take the Phoenix meter and uh, check their conductivity without any problems and again, that's the cold question of liability. This was the opposite. The patients made us better, more thoughtful, more careful, all the above. And uh, also the, the, the blending of staff that if, the, uh, uh, if you had a new staff member that you had in the unit that was learning how to build a machine, one of these more senior patients would come over and say, I, I see you're having trouble stringing the line. Let me show you how to do it correctly. But they were doing it in a spirit of love and caring. So the service to both staff and other patients went from being contentious and adversarial frequently in the old uh, assembly line system to being one of love and caring and uh, compassion, both from the patients and the staff side. So a dramatic improvement in quality and a dramatic improvement in the atmosphere of the dialysis unit. Wow. Dr. Dr. Gibney, I want you to hold that thought because uh, we've got to got to go to pay a, a couple of bills. But <laughs> I want to I want to come back with uh, with you and talk some more about patient empowerment. If if you are um, involved in the medical field or if you are receiving medical treatment, then you want to come back and listen to what Dr. Gibney has to say about uh, patient empowerment, because your health is uh, can be your responsibility and it is your right to have 
uh, good health. And, and Dr. Gibney is one of the good guys who can teach us exactly how to do that. Um, you're listening to On the Record with Tiffany. I'm Tiffany Smith, Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Kidney Foundation, and I'm here to talk to you about your kidney health. Health is the most important asset we possess. COVID-19 has exposed the unhealthy nature of our population. One in three Americans are at risk for chronic kidney disease. In absolute numbers, that translates into about 600,000 San Antonians. Have you been diagnosed with diabetes? Have you been diagnosed with hypertension? Do you take blood pressure medicine? Do you have heart disease? Have you experienced heart failure? Do you have a history of dialysis or kidney failure in your family? If you said yes to two or more of those questions, you need to come and see us. Are you a part of that one in three? Is your sister, is your brother, is your mother? Texas Kidney Foundation offers free screenings. All you have to do is go to our website, www.txkidney.org. Check out our free screenings. You can either come to our office for an in-office visit, or we can come to you. You can schedule a screening or go to a screening near you. And you are listening to On the Record with Tiffany. And today I have two of my favorite people, um, former HUD secretary, Henry Cisneros, our former mayor and community activist and civil rights activist. I mean, what, what else? My goodness, you have a long, long bio, Henry Cisneros, <laughs> and his beautiful wife. And when, when I say beautiful, I don't mean just outside, but I mean on the inside, uh, Mary Alice Cisneros. Mary Alice is somebody who has, when, when my day job, during my day job, I'm, I'm a, um, also a community activist, but I, I work with healthcare with Texas Kidney Foundation. And uh, Mary Alice actually walked through, through the flea market with me to to uh, translate for me as we were <laughs> trying to get people to get screened for kidney disease. I mean, this is somebody who's not just uh, talking to people about supporting our community, but she's actually a part of the effort, boots on the ground, supporting uh, our community and the people of our community, the least of these. We always talk about that. So I'm, I'm honored to have Henry and Mary Alice Cisneros with me this morning. How are y'all doing? Doing well, and thank you for having us. Um, it's a treat to be on your show, and I'm so pleased that the community can be informed by your platform there. Uh, but I'm also pleased that the community gets to know your personality and your uh, energy level and your enthusiasm, <laughs> intelligence, and dedication the way we have. Uh, you're one of the special people of San Antonio, and I say that advisedly because I, I've, I've known a lot of folks in San Antonio over the years since we entered public life in the 1970s, mid-70s, and uh, I've got to say you light up a room when you walk in. So, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, well, I wanted to talk with you and Mary Alice about um, 
what's going on with COVID-19 and everything that we're experiencing. But uh, first, I'd like to uh, talk about a fallen hero, and that is uh, Congressman John Lewis. Can you tell us what he meant to you? Well, first of all, um, I had the privilege to know uh, Congressman John Lewis. Um, I've served on several panels with him where he and I were to discuss uh, civil rights in the country from the African-American perspective and from the Latino perspective. And I've also worked with him in his role as a congressman for Atlanta, for Georgia, from Georgia. Uh, when I was secretary, uh, that was the years that the Olympics was held in Atlanta in 1996. So uh, the congressman had a, a serious role within the Atlanta community, and uh, uh, we worked very closely together. He's a wonderful man, and all the descriptions that I've heard this weekend about uh, the keeper of the flame, the keeper of the ideals, the person who never, ever wavered um, in his belief of how justice would occur, but also brought a sense of hope and idealism and the future uh, would be better. Yeah. Uh, if, if there's one central theme that runs through him, it's a never-ending optimism. It's a never-ending sense of uh, that America will rise up to her responsibilities and, and be an inclusive place. He believed it in his heart. He helped make it possible. And though we're not there, as we know from recent events, um, John Lewis took us a long way. Uh, this is a young man who was absolutely, totally dedicated to the idea of opening up this nation. And he did so as a very young man yeah. uh, on the Freedom Rides uh, early on. And uh, then he joined with Dr. King, much to the dismay of some of the students who wanted a more kind of radical uh, uh, voice. But John Lewis concluded that that peaceful protest, nonviolence, the, the Gandhi method, if you will, uh, led by Dr. King was the right road. And he studied theology and became a minister himself and never, ever wavered, uh, believed in people, their inherent good, their potential, uh, and fought for it. And he never, never stopped. He was very difficult to be on a panel with because, first of all, you're with a, an iconic figure when you're sitting next to him. And no matter what I have done in my life, it never, ever will amount the same as marching from Selma to Montgomery and getting getting uh, beaten mm -hmm. on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and uh, then spending a lifetime in the movement. Uh, so it's intimidating. Uh, but but then to be around his kind of irrepressible sense of destiny and history, um, you're right. Uh, we have lost a hero and one who uh, our young people would be wise to emulate. Um, so... We 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 uh, we really need to stop and reflect for a moment of one of the great ones. So we yeah. give our condolences to the family. Yes. More importantly, also to the community that will miss him, that know and understand that there were truly fighters at the beginning, and we will continue his fight here, not only in 
in this state of Texas and all that is uh, happening with Black Lives Matter and all of those issues, but for the continuation of the next generation to also help uh, as we go forth. Oh, I, I feel exactly the same way as the two of you. Like, for me, uh, as an African-American woman and as, the, uh, as a leader of a statewide organization, I wouldn't be sitting in the position that I sit in were it not for John Lewis and the movement uh, that he led along with Dr. King and that he was so integral to, I I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't have the opportunities that I have today were it not for John Lewis, Dr. King, you, Henry, if it weren't for people who stood when everybody else was falling, we wouldn't have the opportunities that we have today. African-Americans wouldn't. Latino-Americans wouldn't. We would not have these opportunities, you know? So when I think about him, I think about uh, what kind of movement this was because it was a moral movement. It was a spiritual movement. It Mm -hmm. was, you know, people talk about warriors. No, I, I always say that we're, like with the kidney community, we're kidney crusaders because this is a spiritual and a moral move. Right. Not, it is not one that we have to be combative about because the true, uh, the true fight, if you will, is, is within a human being. It is your soul that we're, that we're battling for, and it takes more than, than just brute strength to do that. Yeah. So, um, and I'm so very pleased, Tiffany, that you focused on this, but also that we're, 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 we live in San Antonio, and it's a city mm-hmm. with an unusual linkage to uh, Atlanta and the civil rights movement. Uh, first of all, there's a substantial African-American community in San Antonio, as we know. That's right. Uh, hence, the uh, largest annual celebration of Dr. King every year is our Martin Luther King Day March here, which has as many as 100,000, sometimes 150,000 people participating. That's right. It's a glorious moment. It's one of my favorite moments in San Antonio year in and year out. Um, And I must say, uh, to pick up on your point, there's so many people who have benefited from the civil rights movement that that, that uh, John Lewis was so important a part of, women and the glass ceiling issues, disabled people and the opening up of doors that were not possible. LGBT people live in a completely different society than was the case before. Yes. Uh, obviously, the African-American community with major, major strides. We've had an African-American president of the United States. We have a long way to go, but... That, that was no small achievement. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, the Latino community here, which uh, has benefited mightily. Uh, San Antonio became the cradle. It became the, the launching point for a number of organizations that were modeled on the African-American civil rights movement, like the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, which was modeled on the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund like the Southwest Voter Registration Project here, which was modeled 
on John Lewis's voter education project in uh, the South. So you can just go down the line and see how we watched and we learned and 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 but it all comes stems from that that wonderful small cadre of heroes, one of whom we just lost, who taught us uh, what America's constitutional and moral obligations were and how we needed to hold this country to that creed. And uh, and and so we, we we thank John Lewis for a lifetime of sacrifice and work. And, and I'm going to end on that note, end this segment on that note, and just ask my listeners and tell you that you got to come back with uh, Henry and Mary Alice Cisneros and listen to how they handled COVID-19 as a family, because that's a, a very timely um, and important topic right now as we watch our numbers rise here in, in Texas. Uh, there are things that we can do as individuals. And uh, once again, um, our condolences to John Congressman Lewis's family. And uh, thank you to Congressman Lewis for the life that you led and for the trail that you blazed and for what you have shown us as Americans, that we are a great nation. And the only way that we could lose our greatness is if we lose our spirit and our soul. And uh, John Lewis was a big part of that spirit and soul. And I know that we'll continue on with that. His legacy lives on in the rest of the No doubt. And you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany. One in three San Antonians is at risk for kidney disease. Do you know what your kidney health is? Well, South Texas Renal Care Group has come up with a wonderful program called Don't Kid With Your Kidneys because kidney disease isn't kidding with you. Go to their website, www.mykidneys.com to check out a free screening near you. Don't kid with your kidneys because kidney disease isn't kidding with you. And we're back with On the Record with Tiffany. So my special guests are Henry Cisneros and Mary Alice Cisneros. Um, so can you all tell us a little bit about, I know a lot's been going on, right, with your family, with COVID-19. Can you tell our listeners how COVID-19 has affected the two of you? With well, we... We had a, uh, a family experience with COVID-19, and I'll, I'll let Mary Alice speak to it. But we got a call one Friday evening in uh, late March from my son, John Paul, who said, I have had three terrible days. I didn't want to frighten you. But uh, starting on uh, Wednesday, uh, he said I had chills, fever, uh, had um, um, diarrhea and stomach issues. And he said, uh, I am pretty certain that what I had was COVID, but I had to get through it because I, I, I had to I get up in the middle of the night and change the bed clothes because the sheets were soaked with perspiration. Um, 
So on Friday of that week, the third day of this, he went hey, in Nick. and had uh, um, uh, the test, and the test proved uh, a week later that he indeed was positive. It scared the life out of us, and we thought we would uh, go to uh, New York and bring him back, and he, there was just no easy way to do it because it couldn't fly if you were positive. I bet uh, you had to sit on Henry, Mary Alice, <laughs> to keep him from going. <laughs> from- <laughs> I, I, was ready, I was ready to go and pick him up, drive up and get him. But he said, hey, I'll just make you sick if I spend three days mm-hmm. in a car with you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. He said, I hate to make you come all this distance, and then you're going to be disappointed because I am not going anywhere. <laughs> so he was pretty brave about it and worked his way through it. Uh, a few months later, uh, I guess this was in May, uh, my doctor, with whom I have regular physical checkups, uh, on one of those checkups said, um, I actually have the test if you want to take it. Uh, I know you haven't had any symptoms, but if you want to have the test, we'll get it done. So he did the test that showed I didn't have uh, the coronavirus, but then he also did the blood test. Mm -hmm. And when the results came back from the blood test, they showed that I had the antibodies, which suggests that I had had it at some point. And uh, so... uh, uh, I, you know, there's nothing I could do. I, I, I was negative at the time, but it p- appears that maybe back in February when I had been in New York and been around Chump Hall uh, that I had uh, had a mild case. I do remember a couple of days where I felt just utterly exhausted. I had no words to describe. I mean, I came in to uh, uh, our apartment there uh, after a day of work and didn't even make it to change my clothes. I just fell on the bed and just, you know, felt like I just didn't have any energy to move. I'm frequently tired like that in New York because it's a grind, but this was, <laughs> this was this was different. So that's kind of our experience with it. Let me just turn this over to Mary Alice, but say in closing that I think we have to take this very seriously. Yeah. Even I, who have the antibodies or had, because they, they go away, uh, there's there's no evidence that once you've been infected, you could not be infected again. In fact, right. there's a there, there's some belief that if you get it again, it's going to be worse the second time. Uh, also, we don't know what the COVID virus does once it's in your body. It can hide in your body and find another time to assert itself. So uh, this it is, is a, a very, novel virus, and vicious, that's what novel means. You know? Vicious disease mm-hmm. and. Uh, I would just say, given the disproportionate impact on African-Americans and Latinos all across the country, because we have been the essential workers, the people who were needed to stay on the job to keep the society functioning in the grocery stores, in the transportation system, doing the mechanical work for, for energy and power and other essential services, cleaning buildings, cleaning homes, um, uh, we have to be especially careful because uh, this is nothing to trifle with. And when you consider the underlying conditions that many in the African-American community and Latino community have related to diabetes, for example, or blood pressure or other, other underlying conditions, um, this is not a, uh, a matter to be taken lightly. It is life and death. 
Yeah, I was thanking the frontline uh, workers, yes. uh, both in hospitals, the nurses that have been there 24 hours, and then mm-hmm. still, you know, with the possibility of passing it on to their own children and families at home. So they're, to us, you know, uh, such an important, critical uh, workforce that have hung in there. Even doctors we know that have passed away, that have caught it and, yeah. and passed away. Of course, we want to thank the the science of the COVID-19 with Dr. Fauci keeping us alerted to the mutations that this COVID-19 has now taken and how the masks are most important for us to wear. So in our family, we we do this thing. We greet one another on a Sunday Zoom uh, call to our grandkids and make sure we go down the list to check off that everybody's wearing their mask and being careful and <laughs> their hands extra, extra for all that we are going through and sustaining what we thought was going to be a 70 day. And now we're up to the next plateau here. So uh, we will hang on until we find that vaccine. And that's what we're praying for. You know, there are so many things that we can do as uh, Americans and as a as individuals, and one of those things is uh, washing our hands, practicing right. social distancing, following the guidelines that Dr. Fauci and uh, that that others have set forth for us. Because we should remember that Dr. Fauci and the National Institute of Health, uh, they have spent their entire careers preparing. For this, they have worked, they have thought through the model, they have toiled. And to say that they are more than uh, ready and equipped is true intellectually. This is a novel virus, so what they say about it will change over time as they gather more information regarding it. Those are not mm-hmm. mistakes. Those are simply the nature of finding out about a new virus. Correct. You know, and we we have we have the best. We simply have to follow what they're telling us to do. <laughs> and Tiffany, you have a special vantage point here. We followed your work with the Texas uh, Kidney Foundation, uh, and uh, your the way it interfaces in uh, African American and Latino communities. Uh, that things that start with uh, uh, difficult and inadequate uh, nutrition that convert mm-hmm. themselves to problems of diabetes, uh, of, of obesity, for example, which then becomes diabetes, and diabetes uh, continues on to become a kidney disease. Yes. Uh, and, and when it does, then the whole bodily system begins to break down and lends to literally as a terminal disease. People die. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, and it's a long and difficult kind of death. So we know the problems caused in minority communities by the lack of equity in our health system, lack of insurance, lack of ability to access clinics and doctors and early diagnoses so things become worse. We know how that is in our communities. And COVID-19 has exploited some of those weaknesses and done its damage disproportionately with African-Americans and with Latinos. It's not right. I mean, 
this whole subject of inequality in America uh, sounds almost like an abstraction. You know, we, 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 yes, we know it's unequal, but what can you do? Yes, we know it's unequal, but we live with it. But when we see it sort of thrust upon us, as this virus has done, and we see people dying, we see people on ventilators, we see people in hospitals, we see people who whose family has to leave them at the hospital door because the hospital is so quarantined that once we turn them over at the door, may never see them again. And that Uh, is terrible for us because in our communities, closure, we hold, we hold each other's hands through the the worst of it. And that is just hard. Fair. Mm -hmm. But the unfairness is not the virus itself. The unfairness is some of these conditions that we as a society have set up yeah. that, 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 that result in disproportionate impact and that result in inability of money to handle it and result in inadequate public systems of health in our communities. So we have a long way to go. Uh-huh. And this, this virus has really showed us that. I'm very proud of our local leaders, Mayor Nuremberg and uh, Judge Wolf, for really not just focusing on the immediate daily heartbreak of the virus. They're doing that well, but also focusing on what have we learned from this? How are we going to change some things about our city? How are we going to set some examples for the rest of the society to change fundamentally the access to income, to health care, to regular diagnoses uh, so that we, we don't have to go down this road again. This has been a wake-up call it really for America. It really has been, and especially about those social determinants of health that you just described. Because yeah. uh, as one, one day in a, in a very eloquent conversation that, that uh, I had with your beautiful wife, Mary Alice, she said, kidney disease is the last stop on the unhealthy train. That was, that was your statement, Mary. And I thought... She's exactly right. The first stop is obesity and diabetes. But the first stop really is obesity. Well, um, even before obesity, mm-hmm. there's mal- the, you know, uh, inadequate nutrition. That's right. Food, food deserts. And that's, dr- and that's what I was thinking about. So what leads to that? Food desert. You can't, lack of transportation. You can't get to where the good food is. Correct. You can't get to where uh, you need to go in order to to uh, just have a regular checkup. Well, and the you stores know. and the stores are not in our neighborhoods because the incomes are low in those census tracts. So you don't get the quality fruits and vegetables, right. and fresh materials and such. So people go to the corner store that's got the sweet drinks and the Cheetos and the mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 that's a poor substitute for for a good diet. You know, we the, one of the first things that uh, when COVID nineteen hit, and I started really thinking about, okay, what 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 is God trying to tell us? Because <laughs> when I'm I'm praying through this stuff and trying to think through what what should we as a society and as a people and as a world, what what is this unveiling? You know, and one of those things is that is what we put our emphasis on. Put so much emphasis on money and on wealth and and mm. and that sort of achievement when 
uh, the very people that were saving our lives were the janitors mm-hmm. and the, uh, the, the grocery store clerks and the bus drivers and the folks that, that uh, affect those social determinants of health that we're, just, that we're talking about. And I thought, uh, we've got to change, and yeah. including my organization. And so we got together, our board, and made some good decisions <laughs> for our community, one of which is that we'll be following those patients that have uh, been di- are in recovery from COVID-19 to monitor their kidney health. The other is how we would be able to, uh, how we would, would give uh, free testing for kidney disease so that people can, can, um, can arm themselves with yep. the knowledge of what's happening with their health. Um, well, I think to answer your question, you know, what is, what is the Lord trying to tell us? Far be it from me to know what the Lord. I know, right? <laughs> We have to listen very carefully, mm-hmm. but I, but I think it, it probably has to do with the slowing down yeah. the pace of society and being more attentive to the fundamentals like like good food and like exactly. uh, a, a balanced life and like you know self self medic self attention to our 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 bodies and. And uh, we're, we, 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 we've been living some artificial existence for a long time. And it's, exactly. and it's little by little getting it more complicated and created systems, which uh, unfortunately, uh, those who, who can afford the very best of things uh, can survive these things. And others who have to live at the margins don't. And that's not right. It's not. It's not right because basic human rights are being violated. Exactly. Like the decency of a home, like the health care, like the quality of a job and the, and the stress of a job and the pay of a job. Uh, so um, we have a lot we have a lot to act upon. And and I think maybe the Lord took mercy on us by giving us this warning sign that uh, things could be worse the next time. I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you on on every point. And that, and this warning sign was was to make us realize we have got to change and and open up uh, opportunity. Yeah, the least of these. Absolutely, you know, it's always been about supporting and caring for the least of these. When, you know, I, you I, I feel great, like like going back to your point earlier about John Lewis. We. Yep. We made some major strides. America was very, very, very wrong in obviously slavery right. and then Jim Crow and then uh, inadequacy of economic rights and so forth in the 1920s. By the uh, 40s, uh, after World War II, there began to be some understanding that we owed something to the minority people who patriotically fought for the country and that opened up things like the GI bill and education, Mm -hmm. but it was the civil rights movement then and president Johnson's great society that really brought us to the point where you may say we may have reached the height of our awareness, the height of our sensitivity to passing the voting rights law, to passing the civil rights act, 
to passing the education programs that we did and the housing programs and creating the department, which I ended up at heading HUD built, you know, developed in 1965. That era was a height of response to the unfinished agenda of the United States. But, but we have steadily through the seventies and eighties and nineties. And now in this century allowed our, our, sensibilities to erode our sense of decency, our sense of ideals to erode. I suspect we're more deeply divided now than we were then sixties. I suspect we are more uh, calloused to the inequalities. I suspect we are living with um, uh, a kind of a cynical disrespect for each other that is corrosive. Uh, and those I think are things that we have to, to really address or the result is unfairness, a bias system, a uh, uh, inequality of income and wages. We're going down the wrong road. We've got to step back a few notches, find that fork in the road and go down the other road again. <laughs> right. Because this one is going is getting us to no. uh a cliff we're about to walk off on, you know. And, uh, you know, when I look at this, there are so many things that on both sides that are the same. People want the same thing. They want, they want good jobs. They want to be able to take care of their families. They want to have, have, the, have a, a lovely home that they get to live in. Yet we're in this quagmire of arguing and and pulling back and forth at one another and and picking each other apart when that is not uh helpful at all well we really need to get a handle on that because the times are going to get more difficult not Mm -hmm. easier climate change and where it's headed it's going to have its own basket of problems i'm afraid some of the leadership we have in the country today that is not leading in the world has left the vacuum and other countries like Russia and China are going to try to walk into that vacuum. So our children are going to face some very real threats, including national security and even war on the horizon. Uh, we have issues like pandemics. We know now how they can spread and how how pernicious the virus itself is to be able to, as Mary Alice said, mutate, change, beat us, uh, even with a vaccine. And we're not assured this is the last virus. Well, it, it clearly is not. Exactly. Definitely not. There will be many more to come mm-hmm. in the years to come. Uh, and then we are going to lose our, 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 our role as a strong economic force uh, if, if, if we don't educate our children, if we don't provide training. So we have some very, very difficult things to do, which would be difficult even if we were all together. Exactly. Divided, we don't have a chance. Exactly. So, so, so we got to deal with this question of mutual respect, and 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 ending some of the divisions if we want to have even a chance of dealing with these massive existential problems that our world is going to confront, is confronting, and most definitely is going to confront. Thank you so much for coming and for for uh, being willing to talk with us, Henry and Mary Alice Cisneros. Uh, your insight is always always so helpful. Uh, and what you just said about us 
having to, we have to come together. That is what the United States was built on. The fact that we, that's why we were called the melting pot, because we have the ability to come together. We just need uh, leaders that are asking for us to come together and that are leading us to actually come together. You know, leadership can provide unification. Leadership should should unify and not divide. And that's what we're going to have to to uh, put into practice is picking. Some thank you for uh, having us and thank you for um, the work that you do, not just in your day job at the Kidney Foundation, <laughs> but then using your persona, your personality, your effervescence, your charm, uh, your energy to. Uh, educate people in using this platform of this show. Uh, every 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 word that that uh, comes from you is a uh, is a word of hope, is a word of possibilities, is a word of uh, excitement, and uh, we need more of that electrical charge, uh, that that source of power in thank our in, in our community. Yes, thank you so much, Tiffany. Not only because you care enough. Not only because you've been through it yourself and your family have been through kidney uh, diseases, but you care enough to come out to our community, the Latino community, and say, let's do something about it. And I, I treasure your friendship and continue to ask that you come back. Thank oh, you. Oh, I will. I treasure your friendship, too. And you all have a wonderful week. And to my listeners, you've been listening to On the Record with Tiffany and Henry and Mary Alice, come back anytime. I want an update, and we can talk about what's going on in in uh, in our country and how we can make it better. Anytime you want to. <laughs> Thank, you. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been enjoying On the Record with Tiffany. We encourage you to share these stories with friends and family. You can listen to other shows by going to 930amtheanswer.com. And join us next week for On the Record with Tiffany on 930amtheanswer. I'm Tiffany Smith, Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Kidney Foundation. And I'm here to talk to you about your kidney health. Health is the most important asset we possess. COVID-19 has exposed the unhealthy nature of our population. One in three Americans are at risk for chronic kidney disease. In absolute numbers, that translates into about 600,000 San Antonians. Have you been diagnosed with diabetes? Have you been diagnosed with hypertension? Do you take blood pressure medicine? Do you have heart disease? Have you experienced heart failure? Do you have a history of dialysis or kidney failure in your family? If you said yes to two or more of those questions, you need to come and see us. Are you a part of that one in three? Is your sister, is your brother, is your mother? Texas Kidney Foundation offers free screenings. All you have to do is go to our website, www.txkidney.org. Check out our free screenings. You can either come to our office for an in-office visit or we can come to you. You can schedule a screening or go to a screening near you. One in three San Antonians is at risk for kidney disease. Do you know what your kidney health is? Well, South Texas Renal Care Group has come up with a wonderful program called 
Don't kid with your kidneys because kidney disease isn't kidding with you. Go to their website, www.mykidneys.com, to check out a free screening near you. Don't kid with your kidneys because kidney disease isn't kidding with you.